Hi, I'm Manish Thavan with my good friend Puneet Khurana. We run a blog by the name of stoicinvesting.com. This is our podcast series. Life is too short to learn from just your own experiences. To inculcate vicarious learning, we will be interviewing and profiling interesting people from different walks of life. Hopefully, this endeavor will shorten the learning curve for our audience. Well, hello listeners. Welcome back to the Stoic Podcast series. Now, if you're starting out your market journey or you are an established market participant, if there is one book series that you would certainly would have enjoyed or you will enjoy, it's the Market Wizard series. The book has inspired and guided millions of traders, and what differentiates these books from other profiling attempts of traders and interviewers is the amount of depth that the interviewer goes into. Today, we have with us the interviewer extraordinaire, Jack Schwager. Well, I am a fan of his books, and so is Manish, my co-host for this podcast. Well, to ask great questions, you need a good in-depth knowledge about the subject. And that ability to put the guest's answer into a practical context at the time of the interview only, and then ask questions which will make it beneficial for the listeners is what we strive for. That's always been our attempt to give something practical and implementable to our listeners. During this podcast, I'm so glad that I had Manish with me. Well, I, being a fundamental value-focused investor, could not have done justice to this podcast. Jack's most work is in the field of trading. Manish, on the other hand, had his arsenal full with some very amazing questions, and I thoroughly enjoyed taking a back seat and listen to both of them talking, rather than interrupting them with what would have been some very naive questions from their vantage points. Well, I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. With that, Stoic Podcast Series brings you Jack Schwager. Well, Jack, uh, welcome to Stoic Podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure having you here, and uh, Thank you. I mean, I can't tell you what an honor it is to host you on our show. And I'm pretty sure that the listeners are going to take away uh, a lot of learning from today's podcast. So I will request Manish first to uh, ask a question because he's a big fan. And he's a trader. I am a value investor, so <laughs> so I will have uh, pretty less questions. But Manish will uh, shoot the first question for you. Okay, oh. sure. Right, Jack. So today, you know, we are profiling the profiler. So first of all, let me tell you, Jack, that what an honor it is. Uh, like Puneet mentioned, you know, I've grown up reading your books and love the way you've brought up those characters to life. In fact, you know, I came to know about Ed Sekuta through your book. and since then a lifelong following has ensued uh, thank you very much right you know i i learned a lot from sekota's uh, faq website about risk management but also about how to conduct oneself in right livelihood uh, so thank you very much and welcome to the show thank you right jack so if i have done my homework right you started your career as a fundamental analyst right and that is correct and later due to some influence of uh, steve cronovich realized that technical analysis is not all voodoo and maybe there is something to it so can you talk us through this transition first why did you discard fundamentals and b was it hard to do since you must have spent good 5 years of your career doing fundamental analysis right 
Yeah. So, uh, well, more than that, as far as the job goes, I started out career. My my date, my job was was not trading. Trading was just a you know something I did on the side. But my job was a was was I was hired as a fundamental analyst, and I did that for a couple of years. And then I uh, looked. I thought I could do better, so uh, uh, I looked elsewhere. I wasn't getting. I didn't think I, I wasn't getting financially rewarded in my own firm. I didn't think. So I uh, just stuck my head out so it was available and uh, was able to get a uh, research director job, which which in those days was primarily, uh, insofar as that job, I don't know if a job even exists, director fuses research. But in those days, as far as it, 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 well, it did exist at every major brokerage firm. And the job was mainly a fundamental job, you know, fundamental fundamental analysis. Uh, maybe a little bit of technical analysis, or but it was more of a minor, minor thing. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, basically, uh, my primary focus was fundamental analysis, both for myself and for analysts who worked for me for quite a number of years. Uh, and I started trading, obviously, using the same type of approach because that's the analysis I was doing. And uh, the fact that I felt comfortable or thought that was a proper approach is easily explained because my education was an, was as an economist. Uh, so as an economist, I would naturally gravitate towards more fundamental type of approach than technical, which did seem, as you said, like voodoo without really knowing anything about it. Uh, so that's that's why I started that way. Now, I had a problem. Of, one problem I had is I wasn't profitable. Was, of course, that was the major problem. But uh, <laughs> it didn't work. It, it, it didn't work in practice. Uh uh, I mean, it worked, and then the trouble is, it would only take you to be wrong once, and it would do a lot of damage. And, and is an inherent problem, and I don't mean this as a as a knock on fundamental analysis. There are many traders I interviewed who use fundamental analysis in one way or another, and some used it exclusively and were very successful. So I think for some people it could, could be the right approach. But for me, the problem I ran into was well, many problems. But there's maybe the biggest inherent problem is uh, that by its very nature, fundamental analysis is almost naturally in contrast with risk management. By that I mean, let's say you do your analysis and I decide, oh, I decide copper copper is a is a good value of three dollars, you know, a pound. Well, if it goes to two fifty, then, then it's a better value. If nothing, if nothing is structurally changed, right? And, and so, the, the more it goes against you, the stronger the fundamental case becomes for your position. Right. And of course, it's very, very difficult to construct a risk management approach if that's the case. So that's the that was the inherent difficulty. Whereas in technical analysis, uh, basically, it's almost inherent in the approach. That there's some sort of risk management. For example, if you're a trend follower, take the simple example. Well, you know, you'll you're with the trade until the trend changes. So when the market starts going against you, you get out, and therefore right. you'll be getting out when you're losing money. In fundamental analysis, you'll be tempted to add when you're losing money. And that's what makes it so so difficult. And for me, that one element was an insurmountable problem. I could never figure out how to get around that. Uh, so, and I never, I actually didn't trade very much. I mean, I would 
trade, I would start for a few thousand dollars and trade and trade and eventually just end up making one bad mistake and losing it, uh, which is not hard to do if you're using fundamental analysis. Uh, but I never had much money at risk, but it never really clicked. And uh, as you said, I had an analyst working for me who was uh, Steve Kronowitz, who also became a very good friend and unfortunately, uh, sadly, died this past year. Uh, and anyway, Steve, I noticed, was doing better. His calls were more likely to be right than wrong. And he was the only analyst I could say that for, uh, myself included. And, okay. uh, and so I sort of, you know, sat down, you know, we were friends even then. We worked in the same office and everything. And so we'd spent a lot of time talking about markets and he explained to me the rationale of technical analysis, started showing me different things. And I started experimenting with it and eventually got pretty comfortable with it. And for me, the decisive, uh, tipping point that switched me over was, uh, it was actually when I started using technical analysis routinely, but also married it with using uh, protective stops. Uh, and I'm talking about chart analysis here, not computer trading at this time. Right. So uh, and I still remember there was like a, a DMARC back, it tells you how far back this goes, goes well before the Euros. We're talking DMARC days here. Uh, and a DMARC had come down a long way and had spent six months going sideways. And I said, oh, well, that looks like a like a bottom formation. So I thought, well, uh, and I was never one to like, want to, I never liked breakouts particularly or waiting for breakouts, but I'm more, so anyway, I, I said, well, I'm assuming this is a bottom. I went long, saw the lower end of the range, and I put a stop in, oh, you know, not right below the range, but a, a bit of ways enough so the market had to really penetrate it. And about a week or two later, uh, I was wrong. The market penetrated uh, the base and it, uh, uh, you know, took out the stop. Now, the great thing about that trade is the market just kept going and going and going and going. And I was not losing any money. I just lost a little bit of money on the trade. And so that was a trade that sort of cemented in my mind the value of using a technical approach because it allowed me to sort of marry risk management with the trading. Got it. Got it. Yes. Okay. Jack, a, a related question that came from Twitter feed was Do you think a person is by nature either a trader or an investor, or can anybody play both the roles? Well, uh, I think probably some people are more attuned to both, uh, to, to one or the other. But I think for a lot of people, both have a role. Well, actually, not for a lot of people. For myself, actually, both have a role. So uh, now, now, investing could be, <laughs> most of my money in recent years has been in real estate, so it hasn't had to do anything with trading, just simply because I couldn't figure out from an investment standpoint anything that they, that I felt comfortable with. Uh, so, uh, because stocks are going up so much, and I wasn't comfortable with interest rates being so low, taking right. a bond risk. And and real estate, for me, seemed like uh, in certain markets, well, the markets I lived in, seemed to be a, a best value. But, but let's take it back to markets. I, I sporadically do do take an investor role that most of my activity in the markets is from a trading perspective. But sometimes I take an investing perspective and it's a very, very different uh, mindset. And I think it really can apply to really most people. So when you're just doing a trade, namely you think, oh, 
market X is going up or down, uh, I'm, I'm going to take a position. I don't really know for sure, but I think there's a little bit of an edge of it go one way or the other. You take your position, you establish, you know what your risk, you establish a risk, and, and that's your trade. Okay, fine. Um, however, there are situations where that's not the, that's not the right uh, approach. Uh, now, I'll, I'll use an actual example, probably the best example I can think of. Late 2000, 2008, when, when the world was crashing, I'd been around long enough, I thought, well, this looks like a classic you know, panic. And I had no idea how far it would go or when it would turn around. But my thought was, hey, okay, I'm not going to try to pick a bottom here or anything. But if I could find stuff that's been down, that A, has reason to have value over the long term, you know, it's not like a, it's one company that can go out of business, and, and B, uh, is down so much that I don't have to pick a bottom. If I just hold it long enough, it probably should be okay. Then that's a trade, and that's a trade I would do without any risk management. So, for example, back then, the trades I would I was doing were like buying uh, uh, ETFs in, in metals, uh, ETFs in China, uh, or and often the leaps, the options, uh, as opposed to the actual ETF uh, materials. Basically, ETFs in in commodities and emerging markets. Basically, those two areas, because they were down like 75, 80 percent. And my, right. my my simple assumption was was well, you know, metals are always going to be used. We're not, you know, we're not going back to the Stone Age. And 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 secondly, emerging markets are having a rough period, but they'll come back sooner or later. And these markets have been down like 75, 80%. So I said, well, they might have been too high when they started, but at 75 to 80% down, if I just buy and hold, you know, it's, I'm prepared. I was prepared in that situation to just, if they went to zero, well, metals are, you know, metal companies as a group and an ETF are not going to zero. Emerging right. markets are just the whole emerging market, uh, in, in, uh, where if it's India or China, uh, or, or even Russia, it's not going to dis is just not going to disappear. It's you know going to be worth something, right? So, so those were just the basic assumptions. That type of case, that's not a trade. I just said, wow, and I picked that. I picked a spot maybe where it was like down to twenty year lows or whatever, and I just went long. And I had no stops. I had no plan to get out. I just put it on. And so that's an example of investment. Uh, it doesn't happen very often. And so for me, an investment is. When something has come down so far, well, I'll give you another example. I had uh, a couple of years, a year or two, a couple of years ago, I just went through a bunch of charts. I just looked at very long-term charts, 20-year stock charts, and I, you know, of some major, of major companies and whatever. And I just, in some cases, looked at it and said, oh, well, you know, here's a good uh, base. And if it gets down here, I'm willing to buy. So like IBM, uh, I think it was like 200 or something. I think I put a buy-in. I think there was a base somewhere like 100, 110. I forget where, but it was like way down into a major support area. So I just put a buy in, and like a year later, I got executed. You know, it got triggered. And so, right. you know, it's, al it's I, almost it's almost like you. Uh, I mean, the, the latter example, it's like you use technical analysis for your fundamental call as well. Well, yeah, that's yeah. You're right. You're right. Insofar, but basically, you're right. So no situations. I thought, you know, fundamentally we're in a panic or it's overdone, way overdone. But I, I kind of define the overdone on very long-term charts. So so even there, there's a chart analysis. The big difference is those type of trades, I have no stop. And if it goes to zero, it goes to zero. 
But those type of trades I won't do. Well, IBM, I guess an IBM could go to zero as possible, but I, I wouldn't do it on some, you know, small stock that's, you know, God knows what. But but on a major, you know, on an ETF or a very major company, uh, you know, I'm only doing it for a small amount of money of total wealth. I'm not risking a lot. Of, I'm only risking a very small percentage per trade, you know, per right. trade, rather speaking. So so I'm prepared to to uh, to to you know not have any stops. But that is a very different psychology than trading. So I think. One of the best pieces of advice I can give to people is decide whether something is an investment than a trade and <laughs> decide before you put on the trade. You know, right. so, you know, of course, people, people buy something and they'll buy something at a hundred and, uh, and, uh, they'll say, I'm getting out when it goes, if it goes to 95. Well, when it goes to 95, it becomes an investment. You know, oh, well, I think I'm going to hold this. It's really worth more. So, but that's not, that's not an investment. An investment is something that you decide ahead of point. I'm I'm willing to hold this forever, you know. But Jack, I, would I'm you sure would you put uh, you won't put stops, all right? But will you add on to your positions if they fall further? Uh, so you're not going to apply that uh, uh, if it was cheap at hundred, it is going to be cheap at fifty psychology also. Uh, basically, those type of trades. What I do is I I I put in scale. The way I approach that type of trade typically, the IBM was definitely just a one shot trade. But yeah. but the ETFs example I gave you two thousand eight, we haven't had. A major situation like that, really, since then, and well, you know, I, I'm sure it'll happen again. But uh, in a situation like that, right, is I put in scale, scale down buy orders all, you know, on the way down. So, you know, like the XME, I might be buying. I might have started, I forgot where I started buying, maybe 17 down to 10 or whatever. But I would just scale in. So I decide ahead of time what the broad scale is, and 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 I expect not to get the lowest, the lowest orders because. You know, they're the really extreme. Uh, but the beauty of that is if you don't get executed on everything, you're basically never really behind much. Uh, uh, Jack, uh, so, just this one question there. So, you know, because uh, the readers are going to get a confusion because a good chunk of our listeners are fundamental investors. Uh, so when you started out, you were fundamental investors in commodities. If, am I right? Oh, that's the end. No, that was still trading. That was still fundamentally based trading. Sure. It's different. So that so that's the futures where there's more you know where your margin like five percent so yeah. <clears throat> um, so you you know so it's a very large you know very large loss to let it go you know you can't just let it go to zero right so that's all, always that's always going to be futures markets to me are always trading markets sure never investing. so in your in your experience where you have uh, you know interviewed and you have uh, profiled many investors or let me call many traders come investors uh, uh, have you uh, had the luck of finding somebody who um, basically approached the markets from the fundamental aspect with risk management on stops and prices, etc. Uh, well, yeah, there are pe- sure there are people. Yeah, and I, I'm saying stocks, like, not futures. So because I know future is too leveraged, so there you have to have some kind of risk management in terms of prices. But uh, who is exclusively dealing in cash market and not in uh, leveraged market? You're talking about in, in equities. Yeah, in equities. Yes. Uh, well, you know, not. I mean, I can think, you know, not not people who use risk management. Basically, no, because I, mean, I think of people who do that, like uh, like a Joel Greenblatt, who's yeah. a classic value investor. Yeah. Uh, or or somebody like Martin Taylor, uh, who I interviewed in Hedge Fund Market Wizards. Mm. Uh, they, they, those are people that uh, they're they're buying value and they're willing to hold. 
they're confident enough in their approach and diversified enough and uh, allocate, you know, allocate only, you know, no more than a certain amount of risk to any position, that they're just willing to stay with the position. And they understand that there'll be periods where they'll take a drawdown because of that approach. Sure. But as long as they're comfortable with the fundamentals, they're not going to have a stop. In fact, just quite the opposite. I'll take Martin Taylor as an example. Yeah. When I interviewed him, uh, he was, an, uh, and for your listeners to give you, to give it a context, Martin Taylor is sort of, sort of the best emerging market manager I, I ever, uh, that I was able to uncover. Uh, although by, by the time I interviewed him, he was uh, investing not only in emerging markets, but also developed country markets. Uh, in any case, he had, his funds had grown. He was managing about seven billion billion of a B okay. dollars when I when I interviewed him, and uh, when I interviewed him, uh, interestingly enough, he had just put out a letter to his investors saying he was going to close his funds. Uh, wow. He had to give them a one year notice. Uh, and and the interesting thing is he was doing this even though is he wasn't too far, you know, he, he may have been like ten or cent off. Well, he had put out the letter when he was actually not that far. Not that far off his his all time highs, so he was doing it because he didn't want to be pressured by investors to avoid drawdowns. Because if he felt that his position was worthwhile, he didn't want to be pressured to get out of it. And uh, so when I interviewed him, his his biggest trade that he had on was Apple. It was his biggest loss at the time. Uh, he had like a fifteen percent drawdown, which was almost all due to Apple. Uh, and this was back when Apple was three hundred fifty or so. Before it split. Which and, year was uh, this? This was in 2011, I believe. Okay, okay. Uh, but in any case, he was he gave me the fundamental reasons why the analysts were wrong, and he was absolutely convinced that Apple was going much higher. Uh, about six months later, Apple had already doubled in price. But that's the – he's kind of sort of classic, uh, a classic example. Uh, Greenblatt would be no different. You know, he would basically, as long as his – the, the holdings met his criteria, he would stay with it. These guys were not to use stops. Uh, so most fundamental, most pure fundamentalist, or I can't think of any fundamentalist that I interviewed that used uh, a stop-loss approach. Sure. Uh, so like I say, it fights the methodology. They have to depend on being right significantly more than wrong and on not having too much on any single position. Uh, in Greenblatt's, uh, in, sorry, Taylor's case, his argument was, well, you know, it's 350. There's like 200, 250 in a bank. Uh, the stock is worth much more than, than it's trading at. He was just prepared to hold it, you know, no matter what. But uh, but so, you can do that uh, only if you are in equity markets. You can't do that in futures. And uh, oh yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I, I said, I said, yeah, uh, I I don't I would never consider futures investing. Futures in my mind are always a trading trading market. instrument, right? Always, always. Yeah. I would never. Yeah, I would think it would, it would be very, very dangerous to ever treat uh, futures as an investment. Sure. sure. Right. Right. Jack, uh, I have a question around drawdowns and sharp ratios. You know, at one end, we have people like Ed Sakota who say that if you don't want drawdowns, don't trade at all. And, and then on the other extreme, we have stars like Ed Thorpe doing statistical arbitrage and who never had a negative quarter in his 20 years. Now, with such contrasting styles and variants, how do you measure success? Now, there cannot be a single benchmark or a yardstick, can there? 
No, there. I guess not really. I mean, there are yards. There are some yardsticks that are better than others. Uh, you know, so in other words, uh, in my own mind, something like a gain to pain ratio, which we can talk about more if you want, is a much better measure than a sharp ratio. Or, or the Sortino is better than the sharp. But uh, so there are better and worse measures. But you're quite right. Different people have kind of totally different approaches. Now, if you could do what Thorpe does, or did, I should say, if you could do what Thorpe did, then that's the best approach. I mean, Thorpe literally turned the markets into a money machine. But he is right. he is the one in a billion individual. You know, uh, Jim Simmons and Renaissance was another one like that. You know, so there right. there are people, there are a few people like that 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 come along and they tend to be quants and uh, and figure out how the market is predictably with with a high probability. Uh, uh, raw, you know, mispriced, and and exploit that inefficiency. Now, Thorpe, and, and that type of thing doesn't last forever. Thorpe, to do this, had to keep on reinventing himself. So he may have started out with warrants and options, uh, having worked out the equivalent of the Black-Scholes model many years before it was actually published as a paper. Uh, right. But that, when, when pricing of options, when, when he was no longer the only person in the world who knew to price options, uh, he switched on to, you know, he, he went to, on to convertible arbitrage. He was the first person to come up with convertible arbitrage, the first person to probably uh, really successfully uh, employ statistical arbitrage. And to do, and, and he took that, even that one methodology, he took through various iterations as the rest of the world caught up. He figured out improvements that kept him ahead. So that's right. a rare, rare individual. Now, if you can do that, and that, <laughs> that, that approach, resulted in a track record of, of 19 years with only three months of losses, all three of those months being losses of less than 1%. But that right. is the exception. People, almost everybody can't do that. Um, yeah. So if you have a more normal approach, uh, you're going to have drawdowns. And that's just the, 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 the thing then is to just be able to manage the risk so you stay in the game. Right, right. In fact, I was re- reading his book and I was amazed to see one of the strategies that he mentioned uh, back then in 1960s was exactly what Mark Minervis, uh was doing. So it, he called it Midas or something. Interesting. Uh, uh, Jack, I have a related question. Uh, I know it will be a touch difficult for you to answer this, but if, if I had to put a gun on your head and ask you to name the best trader that you've ever interviewed, who would that be and why? Well, it probably would be Thorpe. Just, just for sheer, sheer return to risk, you know. And and I, by my very nature, uh, believe that return risk is the only true measure. I mean, you can't look at return alone. Now, there there are people who, who in terms of return, sort of made you know many multiples of uh, of what uh, of what Thorpe did. But to me, the, the to be able to do that in a smooth ride is actually the most impressive thing. So Thorpe may have been averaging like 19% a year. And I guess somebody like Marcus in his heyday was probably doing hundreds of percent a year. But still, that was uh, – or Sakoda, it, 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 when he had the markets, when he was early in the game of trend following, and he was one of the few people who were doing it, doing it correctly, uh, may have had like huge gargantuan returns. Uh, but that methodology, of course, like many others, it, it things don't let markets change. You can't. Any approach that works that well will go away or certainly lose much of its efficacy. 
So there, there are people who certainly have had uh, periods where they made more spectacular returns, uh, but for return to risk, on a return to risk basis, I don't think anybody uh, that I've ever met uh, could match Thorpe. Right, right. The gain loss ratio that Jack talked about is profound. He's uh, is spot on. He says don't judge things on just returns, but uh, the amount of risk that you're taking for that. Absolutely. Uh, sure. And let me just add one point here, just to make. If anybody doubts that, I'll give you a very, very simple example. Uh, if you want to double your returns, I can tell you how to do that. Just double every position you take. You'll double your returns. You'll also double your losses. So that you, by just that simple example, obviously return alone can't be a proper metric because if it, if it was, then everybody could become twice as good a trader by doubling their size. Right, right. Got that. Now, Jack, I keep receiving messages from young people who are leaving their jobs to do trading and investing full-time. Now, I think it happens all the time in any bull market. Uh, I wanted to know what advice would you like to give them, considering that it is almost a loser's game, you know, where winner takes all, and for every one success, there are like a thousand bankruptcies. But on the, but on the yeah. other, other end of the same coin, Jack, counter-argument is that there were people in your book who failed spectacularly but came back from the ashes, so to speak. I mean, Marcus, the chapter one, for example. So right. it is like cash 22 situation, isn't it? Do you trust your instinct or not? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, look, uh, you're right. Uh, there, among the people I interviewed, not only Marcus, but but he's probably one of the best examples because he, he did it multiple times. But lots of these people did flame out uh, before they became successful. Uh, that's probably more, more common to have met before early failure than to be immediately successful by far. So so that part is true. It all is also true that trying to earn a living as a trader is actually very, very difficult to think to do. And I think most people can do it. Uh, even if you can trade profitably, trading profitably for a living is a whole different story because right. uh, if you have to depend on paying your mortgage on how you do the market, that, that puts a whole other line of pressure on it. So I think people shouldn't even try to trade for a living unless all the following conditions are met. One, they're quite confident that they have an edge and they understand what the edge is and they've proven it decisively for themselves. Two, they've saved up enough money so they can live for a couple of years uh, and go. And know they can go back and, and and get a job if need be. And so if the trading didn't work out, they'd be okay. okay. Uh, so I think those are two conditions that you need to have in place to even consider it. Uh, and understand that once you go to trading for a living, it puts enormous more emotional pressure on, and you have to be cognizant of that possibility. So uh, it's not for most people. It's very difficult to do. And if you have to, if you don't have enough savings, then it's almost impossible to do because then you're just your emotions will drive your trading, and if your emotions drive your trading, then you can't be successful. Right, right. This is profound, uh, Jack. Very, very important uh, advice for the young. Uh, the couple of things that you mentioned, spot on. Uh, so, Jack, I wanted to pick your brains on pattern recognition ability of our mind. Uh, you know, I happen to have a discretionary trading setup, and I have never back tested it. This very peculiar strategy where I catch the reversals 
and to be honest you know i'm actually very good at it uh what i wanted to know was that do you think that such a non mechanical discretionary approach has some merit or do you think it is all luck and the role of dice has been nice to you no i i think uh, what you know of course it can it can always be luck i mean that's always a possibility but uh, no i i think that uh, that that is actually a viable approach in fact it's what i myself do i mean i basically look at charts and uh and uh you know come to opinion sometimes that i feel that something's going up or down for whatever reasons uh uh and uh i don't put i wouldn't bet a ton of money on my being right or wrong but i but what i do is i i always limit the risk on any outright trade uh you know so i know ahead of time what i'm risking and if right. i'm wrong i'm wrong so but i i kind of use a similar approach in other words it is totally discretionary off of charts and so yeah i believe that that is that is certainly a feasible if you marry it with the big proviso is yes if you marry it with risk management risk management so that if you're wrong you limit your your loss uh i think it's totally viable and in the age of computers becoming more and more powerful uh you know for most you know to use a quant approach is probably for most people more difficult perhaps because you're competing against some really really powerful quant teams and and computer power and the ability to do enormous amounts of of of, of research on a quantitative basis so very very difficult for an individual to compete with that but what individuals are very very good at is seeing patterns and uh they can be better at that than computers in fact even something like use a an example of uh finding uh finding guns uh, novas supernovas or things like that where they weren't before maybe not something that's uh because they might show up in a in a star chart where you know there are thousands of stars uh and then one shows up which wasn't there uh you and i some people who have the talent are better than computers at picking that out uh or so for planets maybe it's a better example uh you know for uh being able to to see a motion where where some object moved or or maybe an asteroid or a comet something that's moved relative to fixed positions so the human uh, eye can be much better than a computer almost in picking some of those things out and some people have that talent so right. i think charts are charts are in a way like that certainly you can't like just look at a classic pattern and and have that be the edge you have to sort of combine there has to be a lot of experience involved and right. uh and and it's and the the patterns probably are somewhat nuanced you know it's not just one thing it's it's certain patterns in the context of other things and and so forth uh and maybe it's a hint also how a market behaves and whatever but yes i think humans could have uh, an edge discretionarily finding patterns which are not easily uh put into a program because the patterns are uh it's on something for one they may not be exactly defined because it's based on a lot of experience and intuitive feel and a lot of traders couldn't even define exactly what it is right uh, so that's right. one problem secondly uh there's so many combinations of things that you can't test everything if you did you'd be you'd be worried about hindsight fitting so i think True. yes i think i think it's certainly a, a viable approach right right jack thanks for that uh you know uh jack i was going through one of your interviews 
And by your own admission, you said while you were profitable overall uh, as a trader, you would not consider yourself as an exceptional trader. Now, now, Jack, if after examining the best in business from so up close and personal, uh, if you could not clone them, then who can? Uh, my, my question is, uh, a great trader is born or can the skills be cultivated? Well, uh, I think great traders are born. Great traders are born. And, and uh, sort of uh, decent traders or, or traders who can be that profitable maybe can be made. Uh, so I, you know, I uh, was, you know, ran until about 10 years ago when I had my bad ankle, but uh, even, even now I do long distance walking, but, but I ran for a good part most of my life, uh, actually from a teenager on. Okay. And I was, and I was devoted to it. And I, and I would do it even when I was busy and, uh, and I would do long runs on weekends, but no matter how devoted and, uh, uh, and committed I was to it. I would never be, I was never, I never had the physical ability or the body shape to be, forget about competitive. I mean, you know, nowhere worth an air shot of being competitive at any level. I just wasn't good in that sense. I could be, you know, I, I could, I could run, I could run 10, I could run 10, 15 miles at an eight minute pace, but that's about it, you know, and, and no matter how hard I trained, I probably could never have done better than about seven minutes, you know, so I would, I would never, I never, had I, I would not have the physical capability to do it. Now, mm. I could be more devoted than anybody else. I still couldn't do it. And so I could interview all, uh, more traders than any good traders than anybody else and maybe have a lot of knowledge. It doesn't mean that I have the natural intuitive skill to be a good trader myself. Uh, the only reason I don't lose money on balance is because I know so much. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't think I'm a good trader. I just know enough. Uh, so I, I, I could be net profitable, but I, I just don't have just the innate skill of the people I interview. And there's no reason I should. I mean, I interview these people. I am not these people. Uh, so I hopefully did a good job communicating what they did and the knowledge they conveyed. And I certainly picked up a lot of the knowledge they conveyed myself. And that's why, you know, on balance, I'm profitable, but I certainly don't consider myself a good trader. Got it, got it, Jack. You sure did. You sure did justice <laughs> to that. You literally brought them to life. Sure. Uh, Jack, I have a question on your uh, Fund Cedar platform. Um, I just, so the whole, the, the whole idea is that you want to connect some phenomenal traders uh, with the people who want to provide them the capital to go ahead with. Uh, first of all, is it across, uh, across the globe or is it only restricted to US? Absolutely, absolutely across the globe. In okay. fact, that's, our, our whole concept in the very beginning was a global meeting place where we could find traders wherever they were. You know, any, in fact, we have people signed up from over 100 countries. Sure. Uh, so we could find traders wherever they were, wherever it was emerging, you know, developed countries, emerging countries, uh, not even emerging, anywhere. Uh, could be people who, uh, who are quants or discretionary traders or traded any instruments. We were just looking, we were sure that it, with all the millions or tens of millions of people trading, uh, that there were a lot of people who had skill and had no chance of ever being discovered because sure. they didn't have the right pedigree, they didn't weren't in the right country, they didn't know the right people. So we wanted to create a a 
a sort of a neutral base sure. where anybody could be judged based on the numbers and anybody could link their account to our to our site. And the numbers, because their numbers would be coming from the broker, the numbers would be verified. And we could also discover people who had trading talent that otherwise nobody would ever know of. But, but will there be a discretionary element of judging the risk measurement uh, of the of the execution, or are you going to, uh, you know, rely on uh, mathematical outputs? I mean, I'm pretty sure for hundreds of traders, you can't have a discretionary way of judging risk. But how, return is pretty simple. But how are you going to uh, make sure that you're getting the risk measures right? Okay. Well, well, basically, we've got a lot of analytics on the side, which the traders themselves can. POC and use and whatever sure. and graphics and so forth. So we we have all those graphics and analytics to look at the to look at what the trader has done and and uh, so that's very helpful. But so the, but the first the, the initial search is purely quantitative. That's just to get the a group of traders that we consider. Now once we've defined that group, then we would you know drill down and begin with you know per speaking to the traders and getting a better feel of what they're doing and so forth. Sure. But the first cut of who we you know, look to speak to would be purely quantitative. And that's fairly simple. So just because somebody has done well, uh, even return risk-wise, yeah. is obviously and certainly no guarantee they'll continue to do well. And it may not be a reliable indicator. However, what you can say, there's certainly no reason to expect people who haven't done well to start doing well. So, so it makes sense to start your search with people who have done well and then try to go from that group to a subgroup that you who have done well, who you think are have a reasonable chance of continuing to do well, and you can also then, when if and when you combine them into a say a fund of a group of traders, you can then also use correlation analysis to get a diversified group, which basically right. improves your uh, your investment relative to uh, any individual trader. Sure. Sure. Right. So right. in that case, uh, um, so Jack, uh, do you see a huge amount of strategy difference between you know various geographies? If that is the case, what I want to also take away from this uh, answer is that all the knowledge which people like you have made sure that it's available to the world in form of books, is it really transferable? I understand it from the psychological perspective, but I'm saying from a strategy's perspective, is it as transferable and as valid for an Indian trader uh, as it is for a U.S. trader? Uh, well, since I have not traded Indian markets, I, I can't answer the second part of that question. Yeah. Uh, Any emerging market you, know, you can pick. I mean, it's not uh, specifically to but, but But there is a universality of markets. And yeah. I think a lot of the basic things uh, do transfer from one market to the other. Certainly risk management and yeah. things of that nature, which are absolutely critical. Sorry, what was the first party? So, first, so yeah, uh, when you when you get all these traders from hundred countries around, do you see a strategy difference? Oh, oh yeah, no, the difference yeah. is yeah. So I can't. So uh, basically, Fundseeders is two companies. Uh, it's Fundseeder Technologies, which is the site Fundseeder.com. Yeah, and that's where we built out the analytics and graphics and the ability of people to link their accounts and so forth. Uh, and to and to, we've also created uh, we've also created indexes based on. Uh, traders uh, that are signed up. We've also got a leaderboard. So there's a lot of stuff on there. But building out those analytics and designing those analytics and and really uh, uh, getting a critical mass of traders signed up, that's where our focus has been. Now, we also have 
the the one that is a precursor to the to uh, fund seeder investments, which will then use the data of fund seeder technologies to find traders which it uh, can and has introduced to investors and will uh, 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 use to introduce to you know to other investors and to form uh, fund products and, and also plan a multi manager product. So that that is more like stage two. And so we've been focused on really getting the investor side and the analytics working properly and, and expanded. And uh, we've only just begun as of the end of last year, I think Fundseed Investments made its first allocation. And 2017 will really be the first year uh, where all goes according to plan and we will start making uh, or into having introductions of consequence uh, from the traders we find on Fundseeder.com. Uh, uh, so that I've deferred uh, the serious, you know, searching of the database and analytics until we really had were ready on the investor side. Sure. And that was stage two. So now we're at the brink of that. And so in coming months, I will start really for the first time uh, looking more detailed at the at the traders on the site and so forth. Right. Uh, but uh, I haven't done that analysis yet, so I can't answer your question. <laughs> sure, sure. Right. Maybe next year. Right, Jack. I noticed that you have developed three indicators for trade shock. Uh, I asked the same question to Ralph Wentz, who has developed some robust indicators. I just wanted to know first, where do you start to look for inefficiency uh, while developing an indicator? And secondly, perhaps more importantly, how do you figure out that this indicator can have some edge in real markets? And how long will the edge last? Like, for example, Van Thorpe assigns this SRN number to his trading system based on its internals. Uh, how, how do you do it? Okay, so... Uh, first of all, I got to tell you that I'm not an indicator person, okay? And I I don't use indicators myself for trading. Uh, uh, and when TradeShark uh, approached me to do this, I said, you know, that's I told him that. But I, then I thought about it, I said, you know, however, I have developed systems. And uh, there was a time where, uh, where I was working for uh, brokerage firms as research director. One of the things I did was designed technical systems. And uh, basically, I stopped kind of doing that after, well, 20 plus years or whatever. I, and I was also, a, I had a partnership in the CTA at the same time. But in any case, uh, what I thought was, okay, that's a great test. I said, <laughs> I, I've, uh, I could take these uh, these systems, really groups of systems, and I, had, I haven't, haven't looked at them for 20 years. I had a partner I have a partner I work with on all this stuff, a fellow by the name of Louis Lukak, uh, who was also my partner when we had a CTA. Uh, and uh, basically, uh, he does all the programming. So what I proposed that we do is was just to, to up to run to run the, the systems that we had developed 20 years ago and, uh, and to see and wait. The, the waitings come by really, you know, well, let's say if there's 10 systems as an example, if all ten are like one way, that'd be a hundred. If you know five and five is zero, that type of thing. But that's how we would get a, an indicator out of it. So, uh, so we developed. Uh, so the, the beauty of that was it had been defined twenty years before, hadn't used it in the interim, and sort of my my attitude was okay, let's run this, 
And if it does okay, then, then that's valid. You know? So we did it. And I compared it to, uh, to CTAs and everything else. And basically, it did better. So it was better than, than professional CTAs. And, and, uh, uh, so, and, and of course, net profitable uh, for that period of time. I think, uh, I think when we tested it, it was about like 17 out of, or 18 out of 20 years profitable. And, and, and the statistics were reasonably okay. Uh, so, uh, so, well, I said, okay, so it seemed valid that, that basically that's what it was. We did no optimization. Uh, in fact, the, the indicators were designed so they were not optimized. Uh, we, we did allow, we did allow traders. I built, built the indicators so traders could define their own thresholds. So the indicators could be customized. So, right. uh, uh, so there were like three indicators, very, about 10 ways of using them. They outlined different ways people could use them. Uh, so all I knew was that uh, uh, I had developed them a long time ago, tested them over sight unseen without optimization over an interim 20 years. It seemed to continue to work. Uh, not, of course, there were some, a couple of you losing years. There were years where it didn't work. Uh, but again, nothing works all the time. But on balance, uh, hey, most people would have been a lot better off using those than doing something else. So I felt it had validity, and that, those were the indicators. Uh, but... What it what it what it didn't do, what it didn't have, was this flash of picking a bottom, picking a top, uh, you know, uh, uh, these very nice trades that you see in advertisements. It, it it didn't do that because it was designed to work over the long run. It wasn't designed to look great, you know, over the past two years because it's hindsight fitted. Sure. And so, by its very nature, that's the case. So anybody, you know, using the indicators would have to be. You know, you'd go through drawdowns and uh, like any other approach, and that's that's inherent to the approach. On balance, it, it was still working, even when uh, you know, like better, even when trade finance systems were doing poorly. It maybe didn't do great, and it may have had a losing year, but it still was doing better on balance. So right. that, that's what, so the basis of the indicators there was some there were trend and counter trend. It was a, it's a combination of trend and counter trend systems that were developed a long time ago, and then that were just. Just updated, you know, not update, not updated. They were just tested to bring them up to the present time, and then that those were the indicators, and and that's what I provided. So, uh, uh, but I think most of the indicators, I think the audience of Shark Trade Shark, I think that audience really looks for is looking for like very short term type of stuff. They get in today, get out tomorrow, you know, that type of thing. And these right. indicators are certainly not that. So, right. uh, I, I it's been disappointing on. Uh, on the sales side, but they, you know, I'm a lousy marketer. I, I don't develop <laughs> things to be, I don't develop things to be, uh, you know, from a market standpoint. Sure, sure. So, uh, Jack, related question on that. How do you know that an indicator or the trading system that you've developed has stopped working? Uh, is there a pain threshold that decides that? No, there's no, I don't, there's no easy, that's how you, how do you know any system has stopped working? It's very, very difficult. Right. I, I drew comfort from the fact that you know, like I say, it was tested over a 20-year, it was a close to 20 years. Maybe it was, I'm trying to think, maybe it was 15 years. I don't, but 15 or 20 years, it was it was, a, it was a long period of time. So it was tested over a, a long period of time. And uh, that, that doesn't guarantee it'll continue to work in the future. You're quite right. It could stop working in the future. Uh, and, and even in the past, it, like there were a couple of years where it didn't do well. So uh, you know, there certainly are no guarantees. Uh, to me, it's just a matter of percentages. And anything that does 
you know, that does better than the benchmarks uh, is okay. Right. I got that, Jack. What I'm saying is that not not just these indicators, any trading. Oh, any, well, yeah, I don't think it's very, very difficult. Very difficult to know when something stops working. Uh, And a lot of times it could be you because things go through drawdowns. It looks like it's not working and then it starts working again. So that is really, and I'll tell you, I've ultimately gone to pure discretionary uh, after having tried systematic because I felt I had more control with discretionary. And you see, discretionary approach if i start losing money uh i i i start trading less uh i cut my positions i get out you know so uh, i may stop trading altogether with a system you don't have that luxury because once you do that you really break the system so for me it's a little more difficult uh, but there is no easy answer to that question uh how do you know when it stops working it's it's very very tough yeah yeah you know because like for example uh, if I if I if I'm correct, Ed Sikota made majority of his money in the 70s and the 80s commodity markets, right? But if if he sticks to the same system now, I'm not too sure. I agree. I agree, uh, and I'm sure Ed would probably agree as well. Right, right. Uh, Jack, nobody in India has uh, so far done what you have achieved uh, of unearthing the superstars of trading and investing world. So. If somebody wants to clone you and replicate your work in India, what advice would you give him about preparation and search? I mean, please give away your trade secrets, you know, and pass the baton. Uh, well, of course, of course, if you're not interested in doing it yourself here in India yourself. Uh, no, I'm not. So uh, <laughs> I, I'll, feel, I'll, feel, I'll feel free to share. I'll give right. my trade secrets are really writing secrets. They're not trading secrets. Right. Uh, when it comes to the books, I mean, the books are... The books are more about writing. Well, the books are purely about trading, of course, and con- but the books are successful. Oh, of course, they're successful to the extent that of the people who are in it. But uh, I could have had the same people as the books would not necessarily have been successful if it was written poorly. So um, the, the element that uh, that I can share is on the writing side and the the product of something like market the Market Wizard books, all of them, uh, it's it, – not produced the way most people think it is, you know. So I think most people, uh, I'm sure the vast majority of people think, well, you go in, you interview the trade, you turn on the tape recorder, and you take the transcripts and you type them up. That is not what happens. And if that's if that's what I did, uh, my books would be a cure for insomnia. Uh, <laughs> so you, you, know, you typically may have, you can have hundreds of pages you know, of transcripts for any interview. And um, unless you've done this, people don't necessarily know this or are aware of this, but we speak very differently than we write. Uh, I mean, and I'm talking about we, I mean, educated people who express themselves well will still do so very, very differently verbally than they will uh, in writing. And verbally, we... We, we don't finish sentences. We go off on tangents. We have tremendous run-on sentences. We mix ideas. We loop back into the same subjects. Uh, if you transcribe it, it is really a mess. Uh, and so not, it's, I'm a mess when I see my own, my own words transcribed. And, and so is uh, if you try to read it. And so are the traders for the most part that I interviewed. So just, just trying to take raw transcripts and, and – 
Making that the text would be a horrible book. So what, what I'm trying to do is this, do two things at the same time. On the one hand, I'm trying, well, maybe more than two, but I'm trying to, first of all, be as true as I can to what the traders are, are saying in, in essence, you know, not necessarily word for word because that will come out sometimes being quite a mess. Uh, but as close to word to word as I can, where I can get away with it, where the trader has been, you know, uh, I said things in a way that can be transcribed clearly. Uh, but bottom line, the, the idea is to be as true to a trader as you can. Uh, that's number one. Number two, you want to express the ideas in a way that reads well. Okay. So those two things don't necessarily go naturally together. So the transcript you have has ideas and some sections, some sentences and some phrases that can work verbatim, but a lot of stuff that doesn't. And uh, a lot of stuff is, you know, the same idea maybe in eight different places and stuff like that. And uh, the order of the conversation may not flow very well. But if you take 200 pages of transcripts and shuffle the order and clean up the language and combine similar sections, you know, and, and do it in a way where, it's still what the trader basically was saying, but you've cleaned it up tremendously and shortened it tremendously. You then have a final product that reads well, and the trader thinks that's exactly what he said, uh, which is fine. Uh, in fact, I let the traders, I let the traders see what what I have, and so we don't remember we don't remember our conversations exactly, whatever. And so, if you give back something that sounds like what they were saying or intended to say, that's going to seem just fine. So. That's what I'm trying to do. And, of course, a lot of it is actually verbatim, but they're phrases and, and some sentences, but it, the, the conversation as a whole is not the conversation as it occurred. Uh, because the conversation as it occurred would not be easy, uh, is convoluted, doesn't convey the ideas cleanly, and doesn't read well. So the idea is to capture all, capture all the important ideas, capture all the good stories, and put it together in a way that reads smoothly. Sure. Uh, similar, you know. Sure, sure. So one thing which I, I mean, uh, I, if I have, and uh, let me again uh, reiterate that I am an investor and I've been trained as an investor, uh, specifically value investing in equities. And even to a person like me, uh, your books were just marvelous read. And even though I have very little interest in uh, technicals per se, uh, I, and I think one of the big reasons is that you don't stop at uh, at a level. After that, you will keep on inquiring till the point it is absolutely clear for the reader what exactly the person is trying to say. To me, an interview has to have two things to be utilizable. It has to have value of saying, there has to be stuff in there that has value in terms of advice to traders or insights for traders or investors. That's number one. Yeah. And it has to be have to be able to make it read well and if i can't turn it into something that reads well then then i just can't use it sure sure i understand well jack that is it from my side i don't have any more questions uh i just wanted to know uh it, it, can you please recommend some names that you think uh, we should profile in our podcast uh, some names, meaning what names? Uh, oh, oh, you mean of traders? Yeah, uh, people that you think. Oh uh, 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 yeah, well, I'll tell you one 
one a good friend uh, who's a who's been a good trader. He's been a successful trader for forty plus years. Is Peter Brandt. Um, you can find him from. Uh, he has a site called the Fact the Factor. Yes, yes, uh, I'm. I, I know Peter Brandt. Okay, so he's one I'd recommend. Okay. Um, I think he has a lot of valuable stuff to say about trading. Right. Uh, Peter and I think a lot the, the same too, <laughs> so maybe that's why I like him. But uh, right. Uh, I listen to his answers, you know. When he gets asked a question and he answers it, he almost answers it the way I would, you know, so it's and vice versa, so. Sure, uh, sure. Uh, but he has a lot of good things to say, and uh, he's been around for a long time. He's a true veteran and a nice guy. So, yeah, I'd recommend Peter. Oh, okay. Oh, and I mentioned one other thing, because uh, you may not be aware of it. Um, you know, I, everybody knows the Mark of Wizard books, but I just recently redid uh, what was my, actually my first book, which was an analytical book. Uh, except this time around it's probably more emphasis on technical than fundamental uh, and it's called A Complete Guide to the Futures Markets y- and, Yes Jack, uh, I'm aware of that uh, uh, Yeah a, a very... uh, I just want to admit, but I wanted to say on, on that, the publisher initially put it out in a, in a tissue thin paper because it was such a thick book well, <laughs> it would have been a thick book <laughs> now it is a thick book, it is a thick book again but they tried to make it the same thickness as their other books so, because there were over 700 pages, they dealt with it by making the pages thinner, and so there was horrible quality paper. So, uh, I got them to change it, and so uh, so there's a reprint. Now, Amazon is, I think, in sort of an interim stage. They were supposed to be pulling the copies off of Amazon. There were only a couple hundred left, I think, Okay. and then putting out the new. But when the new copies are available, uh, when the good quality co- copies are available, it will say so. Uh, you know, okay. So I just want to make sure that people don't get the some, particularly from third-party vendors, because Amazon will take it off, and then it'll be available to third-party vendors who will still be selling the first printing, which was on this poor quality paper. Got it. And the publishers already reprinted. They've already reprinted it on good quality paper. I have a copy of it. And uh, the, once Amazon has cleaned their inventory uh, and gets the new books, it'll that's what's going to be on there. But it will say that. So. It, just want to make sure that people are aware and make sure that they get the new version of the book. Got it, got it, Jack. And thanks for clarifying that. It's it's important. Yes. Uh, right, Jack. Uh, that's it from my side. It was a pleasure hosting you. Uh, so much learning. Uh, really appreciate your time. I appreciate it. it was uh, you asked some very good questions, and it was fun doing. Thank you. Right, Jack. Thanks. Take care. Bye.